we submit to the Father of our spirits and live. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for that. Hi everyone, I'm Mike. Some of you may remember me from other times I've visited. Um, I hope I don't bore you as much as I have in the past. Um, But yeah, I have the great privilege of preaching God's word to you today. Um, So the sermon itself is from Psalm 25. Um, But before I start, I'd like to open in prayer, if that's okay. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to learn from your word and to do so in freedom. Lord, we thank you for the rich truth that is taught to us in your word. We thank you that you teach us that not only are you truth itself, but you are also the means of knowing that truth. Lord, I pray that you might bless me as I speak. Give me clarity. um, Give me um, a greater understanding um, as I preach. Thank you for what you have shown me um, in my own life from this psalm. And may that be received well by the people listening. So, Lord, be with us today, we pray. Amen. So, Psalm 25 is... um, Before I start, I just wanted to say this is a psalm that I've read at various times in my own life. And um, it's been an immense blessing to me. So, as I preach, I might bring out little bits of why it's been a blessing to me. And my hope is that as we read from God's word, we will recognise what David is, where he's writing from, why he's, why he's able to speak to God in this way, and also why we are able to speak to God in this way. We have such a great hope in Christ. So it was written by David. Before I go into his life, I think... Just acknowledge, I don't know about you guys, but... Like, I've endured tough times. Tough, we all go through hardships. We're in a world that's broken. We're people who are broken. And you generally don't have to look much further than the mirror to see, um, to see pain and suffering and brokenness. And um, whether you're in Dremoyne or whether you're in Mount Druitt, you, you're going um, to have pain, suffering whether it's your sin or other people's sin, that is just, sometimes it hits too close to home. And sometimes we don't know what to do. And this psalm gives great comfort and it shows you where to take that. And it also gives us a picture of why the world is the way it is and what God's doing with that. So now that we've outlined why we should read this psalm, I think let's have a look at David. So King David was the one who wrote this psalm. And many, um, many scholars believe, and I personally believe, that this was written um, at a time where he was basically on the run um, and fleeing his own kingdom. His family was 
destroyed. His kingdom was being ripped out of his own hands by his own son. And David was now fleeing from the very people that he brought into the world and brought up. Um, Now, so David's facing tough times. What does he do? And this is really a psalm that he starts off by what's the very first thing that he does? He says, I put my trust in the Lord. Now, some translations simply say, I put my trust in the Lord. I personally like the version we're looking at today. I believe the NIV um, states it as, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And it is basically saying, I put my trust in God. But what I like to note here is David begins his psalm not just with a statement of trust, but he begins it with actually putting that trust in action. So to lift up your soul is to actually put trust in God. It's an action. So he begins with an action, not a word. And then he immediately follows that with the word of, I trust in God. You know, in you, Lord, I trust. So the action precedes the statement. And I think we can learn much from that. Um, So when, when all else is lost, where do we go? We trust in God. So when I first thought about preaching from this psalm, there's many ways you could approach it. I could sit here and explain about how different scholars um, have determined what the structure of the psalm is and why it's been written that way and the time that it was written. And um, However, I think for, for our purposes today, the best thing to do is to read this psalm as it's written and go through verse by verse and apply this to our own life. And my hope is by the end of our time together this morning, we'll have a real solid understanding of what David did in tough times and also that we can do the same thing because we have a firm hope in the Lord Jesus. So we'll get there. But, so let's, let's unpack this psalm a little bit. Now, Psalm 25 was written as what you call an acrostic so an acrostic is basically a, a, a form of poetry where you follow the alphabet. So you've got, um, if it was in English, you'd have, you know, A's for apple, B's for, you know, I don't know, what starts with B? Biscuit, yeah? <laughs> and you could go all the way through. And in the Hebrew, this was written in that same way. And many believe that when we see an acrostic psalm, it's been written in that manner because it was actually used as a form of teaching. So you could almost argue, and some scholars have, um, some commentators have, that this psalm is a school book lesson on how to live with the Lord in order to please the Lord and experience his blessing. So there's a, it's designed for us to remember and to apply There's a little twist to the acrostic. This is the only one we see in the whole psalms. There's many acrostic psalms that are written. This one's a little bit different. Let's say it's broken. It's a little bit broken. It doesn't perfectly fit the pattern. There's one or two little differences, and you have to kind of 
you have to kind of mix the words around to make it work. You know, and I believe that we have this broken acrostic to reflect the broken world that we live in and to reflect the brokenness of the man writing it. And just because the acrostic itself is reflecting the man and the world, it doesn't mean it's reflecting the God that we're talking to. So the God that we have is a God who redeems brokenness. So while David knew tough times, he now tells us what to do about it. So beginning with the action preceding the statement, David then, so keep your Bibles open and um, we'll just go through it. So if it's in front of you, it helps us to, um, helps us to go through what each verse means. So in verse 2, let me not be put to shame. David knows his enemies are around him. He knows that there's people around him that want to put him to shame. There's people around him that are out to hurt him. What David's essentially saying is, Lord, don't let this play out the way I think it's going to play out. Don't let everything fall apart. Don't let this happen. But the promise, the assurance that David has in his own life is reflected immediately after. So he counteracts his own statement of, Lord, don't, let, don't put me to shame, counteracts it with, it's almost like a hang on, none who put their hope in you will be put to shame. David knows that if his hope is in the Lord, he will not be put to shame. However, shame will come to those who are the wicked, who are treacherous, those that don't come to the Lord God. Here we learn a great lesson about shame. There's a right place to put shame. There is a rightful place for shame to exist. There's also a wrongful place for it to exist. The Christian doesn't bear the shame of others' sin. If something's happened to you, and I've gone most of my life carrying the shame of what other people have done to me, and it's only in Christ that I've been able to acknowledge that and say, hang on, I do not carry the shame of what other people have done. That's theirs. And if they don't take that to the Lord, they will, they will be judged for that shame. They will face the consequences. And that is rightful shame. And we can ask God that he does that because he is a just God. He's the only one that is just. And we can put our trust in him just like David did. So knowing this, David's able to ask God to show him. Show me your ways, O Lord, in verse 4 and 5. Teach me your paths, guide me in your truth, and teach me. For you are God my saviour. My hope is in you all day long. So God is the teacher, the perfect teacher. And we're to come to him and ask him. We're to come to him for our guidance. We're to come to him to learn. We're to come to God to ask him, please teach me. We don't get it. We don't know what to do. Here's a license to come to God and say, I don't know. 
Show me the way. Their prayers God answers. When we humble ourselves before God and tell him we don't know what to do, we need your help. He gives us his perfect guidance. He gives us his word and we have direction. We have a guide to follow. For he is God our saviour. We put our hope in him. His ways are not our ways. I like to use the example of learning and leaning. Learning leads to leaning. Leaning leads to learning. And that's our relationship with God, isn't it? We lean on him and we learn from him. When we learn more from him, we lean on him more. Which leads to more learning. It just keeps going. Verse 6 and 7. Part of learning about what God's doing for us and in our world leads us to ask God to remember, not remember, and remember. So there's a, there's a little twist here where David's really saying, God, remember who you are. Look at your own character. Remember your promises. Remember you are the faithful God of Israel. You are the one. You are the one who is loving, perfect, just, steadfast, faithful to generations. You are the one. Please look to your own character. But as you do that, don't look at me, because I'm not those things. So our plea to God is, God, don't, please don't remember. Don't look at us and remember the sinners that we are, now, I don't know about you, but I've done some dumb stuff in my life. Real dumb stuff. And I still do. My daughter's sitting in the back there. I'm pretty sure she'll be able to confirm I do dumb stuff every day. Right? My prayer is that the Lord does not look upon me and measure out his love for me based on what I have done. Because I don't, I don't pass that test. And I dare say, guys, if we really think about it, we don't, none of us do. So we ask God to remember his faithfulness and his character. And you know what? I can't go any longer without pointing to Jesus right now. So sometimes you, you get a sermon and you preach and you think, I'm going to outline what this text teaches. I'm going to tell you what the Old Testament saints believe, tell you what... Um, what the prophecy was at the time and then I'll end up closing with Jesus and I'm like I I can't go any further in this psalm without just crying out you know Jesus is the answer Christ Jesus is the perfect is God himself the perfect saviour fully God and fully man Jesus is the one that God the Father can look at and see his own character. Only Jesus is the one that God looks at and sees himself. And because God is fully satisfied by Jesus, we can be fully saved by Jesus. So as God the Father looks to the Son and finds his satisfaction, we look to Jesus and find our salvation. What a privilege that is. God, remember 
your character. Remember your son. Don't, don't remember my failings. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and he teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. Good and upright. Mercy and justice in the same place. Only God. Merciful and just at the same time. How that plays out for us is still a mystery. How God can be perfectly merciful and perfectly good and just at the same time. How the holy God can show mercy to those he should be judging and expending his wrath upon. Because he's a holy God. Again, the only answer we can come to is Jesus. Fully God, fully man, God in the flesh. Who does God guide in his ways? Who does he instruct? Sinners. We wouldn't have seen that coming, would we? Who would God teach? Surely God teaches the righteous. He teaches those that are perfectly obedient to him. I don't know about you guys, but I don't keep the demands of his covenant. I fall short, but yet I can stand before you today preaching and teaching you about the love of God. I'm I'm a wretched sinner, but yet I know I can also tell you I'm a saint. I I know my identity with Christ. And that's been given to me by the Lord Jesus. And that's a hope that all of you can share in. And I pray that we all do. Where does our identity lie? We come to God as a sinner. We walk away a saint. What a blessing. Our sins aren't held against us. But what does being a sinner before God lead to? Humility. So there's two conditions here that for the person who learns from God. One is you've got to be a sinner. I'm not saying you have to go out and sin to know God. In fact, it's the opposite. But the condition of learning from God and knowing him is that you are honest about your own sin. We look to God and we own up. We fess up our need for him. We humble ourselves before the Lord. And then he gets us up and points us in the right direction. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Of course, Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. Let us be those people who are humble before the Lord about our own need for him. For the sake of your name, O Lord, verse 11. And verse 11 is the, 
I guess the pinnacle, it's really the centre of this psalm. This is the reality that we are in. Crying out to God, for the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had everything looks like it's falling apart around you and you're angry and you're hurt and you're confused, even lonely, afflicted, anguished by something that's taking place and you cry out to God and say, God, take this away. Why is this happening? You've got to do something about this. Whether it's someone in the family who's ill, whether it's a death, whether it's, a, whether it's some kind of abuse, and this stuff happens in, in our world. What do we do? Do we go to God and say, take it away? I don't deserve this. Get rid of this. All well and good to ask God to do that, but what's David realised when he's doing that very thing? He comes to God and says, take this away. But what happens? He realises that before God, he's, he's naked and bare. We come before God, you ask him for help, you ask him for guidance. Have you ever been in that place where you've come to God and asked for something to be removed only to realise that it was because of something you've done that it's happened? And then you go, wow, what a wretched man am I. Take my sin away. I'm the problem. That's exactly what's happening with David here. And that's the centre of the psalm. No matter what's going on in your life, the greatest need we have from God is for him to deal with our own sin. That's our need from God. We come before him needing him to make us right with him. For the sake of his name, if we ask for the sake of our name, there's no strength in that plea. Our name's not worth saving. There's nothing in us that's worthy of heaven. There's nothing. The Apostle Paul is able to say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all deserving of God's wrath. It must be for God's name alone that we are saved. We are saved by Christ. The Son saves us, sent by the Father for the glory of God. And Jesus Christ hanging on a tree, being born, being killed and being raised from the dead for us is the glory of God. The sinless Saviour hanging on a tree is the glory of God and it shames the wise of the world. What is foolishness to the world? Weakness, dying, being, being persecuted and tortured, being weak. The world laughs at and says, that's weakness. How can you have a God that does that? The Bible teaches us that Christ doing that very thing is the glory of God. The time in history where we see the fullness of the glory of God is when we see Christ Jesus hanging on a tree, paying for something he didn't do. And there's only one other time that we'll see that glory even exceeded, and that's when Christ returns in judgment, where the judgment he purchased out of his mercy on the cross 
he will come to execute. And then we will see shame upon those that haven't come to him. We will see everything that is unjust made right because he is the perfect judge. and We can trust in him. So the real problem is our own sin and we ask God to take that away. It's too much for us to bear. No matter what's going on in life, no matter how tough it gets, our own sin is what we need God to deal with. And then the fear of the Lord in verse 12 to 14. Who fears the Lord? Do we fear the Lord? There's an open question there that he asks. Who is it that fears the Lord? Where is the man that fears the Lord? I wish I could say he's right here. But it's not, it's not the case. I think again we point to Jesus. And when we fear in the Lord, I think the word fear is, is in this sense, in the Hebrew sense of the word, um, is, covers far greater um, scope than what our understanding of fear is. So when we think of fear, we think of cowering in a corner or we think of being afraid of something or being terrified. I think in the scriptures, the word fear, fear of the Lord, means so much more. There's elements that do mean being afraid, but it also means holding in awe, lifting up, being controlled or mastered by, worshipping and putting your trust in something. We all fear something. And the reality is that anything that erodes the fear of God will intensify the fear of man. So if we do not trust in our God, we're fearing something else. And fearing anything other than God will always lead to what we call the fear of man, where we're living for, based on what others' view of us is, rather than on what God's view of us is. So do we fear the Lord? Let us be people that can say, yes, we fear the Lord. And we do so in the Lord Jesus, who came, died for our sin, and was resurrected for our glory. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Here's some comfort for any of you here today that don't know or don't have your trust already in the Lord Jesus. All who sin are enslaved to sin. It's not just you. Every per And this is the message we take into the prisons. It's not just you in prison, it's everyone. The whole world. Every single person that's ever lived is enslaved to sin. Everyone is a prisoner that needs to be set free. And freedom is only found in the blood of Jesus. Freedom comes in Jesus Christ and who the Son sets free is free indeed. So if you don't know this Jesus, consider if you come and think, yes, I want, 
I need God's help and you come to him and think, hang on, I'm the problem. I'm not a perfect person. Surely God won't hear me. And the truth is he won't hear you if you're not perfect. You need a mediator. You need one that is perfect to stand in your place. You need Jesus. He is the one who makes the way clear to come before God. He is the one who sets your feet free from the snare. Knowing this, David then closes in the same way that we could close. Now that we know that God is guiding us, God is leading us, God has saved us by his own work, we are able to say, turn to me and be gracious to me, O God, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart, free me from my anguish, Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope, Lord, is in you. Look what's happening to me, Lord. Can you see me? I need you. I need you here. Can you see all these things happening? Please. This psalm shows us that we should bring these things to God. We should come to him and ask him to understand us. Ask him to comfort us in hard times. We should be turning to him with our cares and our burdens. We need him. I know I need him. Not a day goes by that I don't cry out to God and say, take this away. Please, you know what I'm going through. I need you to carry me through this. Because if I do this my way, people are going to get hurt, including me. And... I've learnt my lessons the hard way. We don't do that. Trusting in God is hoping in God. So the question I want to leave for all of us today is where do you put your trust? Is all of this true for you? Have you put your trust in God? Is your relationship with God affirming what the Bible teaches and believing God is God, but in practice, is your trust somewhere else? Is it in your own work? Is it in something that you have put in your life as a safeguard? Or is your hope and your trust firmly in the Lord Jesus, who is the only one who can give you life? Verse 22, which David closes with was actually added later it was an addition to this psalm redeem Israel from all their troubles now the fact that was added later I want to just close with today because that means a lot to us 
the writers, the people that put together these psalms for us, saw it fit to take what was a teaching, a school book teaching from David of how to trust in God and what, how we should relate to God. And they've grabbed that and gone, this isn't just for the king. This isn't just for the people back then. This is for believers of all time. Just like you did for David, redeem Israel, O Lord, from all their troubles. We can say, redeem us. Redeem the church, redeem your people, all your people. O God, from all their troubles. And praise God, we have a God who does that very thing. And he's given us his son in order to bring that about. Jesus Christ is the yes to all of God's promises. In Jesus we see the embodiment of our trust in God. We also see that he's the one who enables our trust in God by giving us his very spirit. In Hebrews chapter 11, David is referred to as a witness of the faith. And in chapter 12, our Bible reading today from the New Testament tells us and reminds us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He not only saves us with his work, he gives us his spirit. He enables us to know him. And he calls all those that will follow him. So answer that call. But the joy set before Jesus, he, enjoyed, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he's now sat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let me close with this. You can't outsuffer Jesus. There's nothing that you could ever endure that would compare to the God of creation, the eternal Son who has always been there, being forsaken by his Father for that moment in time. You can't imagine. We can't imagine. I've tried. I've gone to Bible college and asked multiple people. No one can answer this one. How much did Jesus suffer? Unimaginable. And he did that so that we could know God for ourselves. How you respond to Jesus will determine whether you have eternity with God or whether you have eternity without him. Let's have eternity with him. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for what you've given us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is our righteousness. Thank you that you have been so satisfied with him that we can be saved and find our life in him. Thank you that you hear us. Thank you that we can come to you in honesty. 
bringing our pains and our struggles to you, knowing that you hear and you care. For you, Lord Jesus, have endured so much more than we can ever imagine. So we pray that you will continue to bless us with your spirit, equip us and guide us through the trials and the tribulations of this world. Keep us from the temptation, Lord, of thinking that we don't deserve things to be happening to us. Lord, help us to be ever humble about our own state before you as needing forgiveness. And thank you that you freely offer that forgiveness for the sake of your name. Praise your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.